0: All through my life, I I saw myself as a married woman uh, with a very uh, pleasant and pleased husband and three kids, and I'll take care of them. And often I would think that I would be a housewife because I'm so much into a family and having a family and leading a family life. That was my dream. I always dreamt of marriage. I always dreamt of a house and a family and children. And I always dreamt of a very, very special relationship with my significant other. I never, ever Uh, in my wildest dreams that I ever imagined that I could be um, single. It didn't cross my mind ever. I was old enough to know, but I was too naive too. I was utterly naive. As women in the Arab world, we
1: grew up believing that marriage is expected of us. It's a stamp of approval, socially, and we're fed this idea that we are going to get married— preferably young, and it will be this happily ever after. But, of course, it isn't always happily ever after. And when it isn't, when we get divorced, Arab women get the short end of the stick. And I don't say that lightly. It's true both socially and in our legal systems. So this episode is about that short end of the stick— I'm Hibba Fisher, Cultures, Hibba Fisher, and you're listening to Kerning Cultures, radio documentaries from the Middle East. And one story that always kind of captures my imagination is the streets lost culture. And you're listening to Cultures. Kerning Cultures. Our story today comes from a new producer with us, Shahed Bani Odeh, and our editor, Dana Balut.
2: My name is Shahid Bani Odeh. I'm a Palestinian journalist who's based in Dubai. So let me start with the fact that although I've never been married before, I've learned a great deal from the experiences of my female friends. Over the past few years, I've had several of my friends confide in me about issues in their marriage, and for many of them, I watched those issues grow into a divorce. But what interested me mainly was not so much the act of divorce, but the aftermath. I felt like I had to face the reality, the reality that we grew up in a, a patriarchal society, if we may call I wanted to tackle how Arab society stigmatizes divorced women in particular and how these women end up being subjected not only to the personal and emotional toll of divorce, but also the social cost of having that label. And it's, it's quite a stubborn label. Here, I think we should explain why in this episode
3: we're focusing on women and not men. And I think the answer is just that we decided to focus on women. They are a population in this region that doesn't get heard as often as men. And quite frankly, society is pretty harsh on this particular segment of the female population. I will say, though, that we are not trying to demonize the men on the opposite ends of these stories. Their versions of the divorce are absolutely valid, just not necessarily relevant in the next 30 minutes. And I mean that. Because today, you'll hear from my mom and not my dad. And while I love both of them dearly, there is no question
2: about who had a harder time post-divorce. So let's meet the woman whose stories you'll hear. Rania, who you heard at the top of episode, is a single mom in her mid-40s who got her divorce on her own. They call it in Arabic khula. And the other story
3: comes from my mom, Rada. She's in her early 60s and a mother of three kids. My mom has spent most of her life being a homemaker and really serving others, especially us kids. She was married and divorced by religious law, as is mandated in Lebanon, and that's where she's living now.
4: You'll hear her first. Part one, how we met. The first day I met him, um, he, uh, he was with his sister that I thought at that time that his sister was his girlfriend. But then he, he sat beside me uh, in the bus. We were touring uh, Disney, uh, Disneyland. So uh, he sat with me in the bus, and this was our first chat. And then we met uh, at the dinner, and um, we kept chatting and talking. I liked him. I even liked him physically. And uh, people respected him. People who knew him respected him. Since I, I, I got to know his sisters, I loved the way he treated them and how he took care of them. He's really a family man. So this is what attracted me most, that how he takes good care of his family. And, uh, you know, And when I saw how he is such a family man and he loves little kids and, and he's a respectable guy um, uh, providing for his family, I thought uh, he must be a wonderful father to my kids. I think he saw the same thing, that I would love her to be the mother of my kids and she would, go, she would be a good wife. I'm not talking about being an obedient wife. I'm talking like being, you know, like feeling with him, uh, knowing that in the long run we would have a good family, we would raise good kids. i was still in los angeles and he said he said gara don't you think we already know each other very well why don't we join our lives i mean yes i said right away yes but but then the wedding day i felt you know is this the right decision is this you know but i i had the courage i said he's the guy the wedding was in venezuela because we used to live in venezuela in the second city of Venezuela, which was, it is called Maracaibo. The wedding was huge, I mean, with so many friends, like 400 guests, and uh, it rained hard, and the Venezuelans, our Venezuelan friends would say, oh, it's raining at your wedding, so that means it's a good, a good omen.
0: I got married at the ripe age of 31. When I was 31, I was the latest person to get married. And, and I used to always crack a joke and say that we in Egypt, who say that she missed the train of marriage. And I always tell them, I caught the last carriage. It was, it was very basic. I didn't have a wedding, I didn't want a wedding, and I never regretted missing that part. I can't say it was for love, but I was old enough and he was somebody who wanted to, to marry me. As my manager at the time put it, she said, I see a very good project. He's from the suburbs, he's a well-educated, um, well-cultured male from the suburbs, and he's marrying into the middle class of the capital. Somebody who knows languages, somebody whom she could help him advance. This was the way it was. Part two. Separation. The first year was was really nice. It was really it was really very smooth and and full of feelings and emotions and so on. I didn't have any um, significant demands. Uh, I lived in a family uh, house uh, or in a villa on a farm, which was actually very presentable um, uh, on the outskirts of Cairo. I used to drive uh, 170 kilometers every day to work and back, which was hectic, but it was okay as long as you know you were happy. I thought it was going to be a normal calm, traditional, and possibly monotonous life, and it didn't turn out to be so. He left the country, he was working in another country for a few years, and then once he was back, he had been living on his own for a couple of years, so he didn't want the family, he didn't want the responsibility, so he moved out and had a, an apartment in the city on his own. I mean, I think everything was kind of over long before I realized it's over, but I was too too much a coward to take the decision and uh, and file for divorce. I used to think of divorce as failure, and I didn't want to be a failure. When did I take the decision? When the situation became too dangerous for my girls. We had a huge, huge fight that ended very ugly, and uh, I phoned my parents. Uh, it was the first time for them to hear that there was anything amiss in my marriage. So my father said, you come, uh, you move your furniture, come with the girls, stay in my place until he comes and we're going to set new rules, a new lifestyle that we'll all agree on. So I obeyed my father as any obedient daughter would do. And I moved to his place waiting for the father of my girls to appear. And he never did. And it has been seven years and a half since. I got pregnant at the end of the year. Our first year, and
4: it was a blessing to have a baby boy. And we were thrilled with the baby boy, and uh, we moved to a bigger house because we were living in an apartment, so we moved to another house. Our weekends was family reunions, barbecues and cooking for everybody. Really, I mean, he he was such an, uh, a busy man that I, I took care of the house. I cooked for everybody because I felt bad because... Uh, everybody worked so I said I'm home so I'll, I'll, I'll cook for everyone so everyone would come and eat. Um, and I had little kids that I had to take to school and you know and activities, bas- basketball, baseball for the kids. I was a busy woman. 1994 we moved to, to Beirut. We moved to the mountains where I didn't know anybody. I was sad. Uh, because his family was like my family. And there is no one here except me and my husband. When did I start having doubts? I started hearing people talking. And even with the talking of people, I always said, no, it cannot be true. He would sleep at his business because he had to wake up so early. So he decided to move and sleep where the business is. He built like And a small apartment for him. So we would see each other only on the weekends. And so people would start talk, like, why doesn't she come and stay with her husband? You know, doesn't she know that he has somebody? And I would always, in my mind, deny it.
2: Part
0: three, after separation. I moved to my parents' house on the 18th of November, 2010. And I waited and waited and waited, week in and week out, and then month in and month out. And then by January, I realized that the father was not coming back. He was back in Egypt by then, but he changed his mobile number, so I couldn't reach him. January, I checked with the lawyer, what could I do and how could I file for a divorce? That was on the 23rd of January. And then on the 25th, the revolution broke. I remember when Mubarak stepped down, I cried for twenty-four hours straight and I don't I don't really know why was I crying that hard. I was never I was never politically active, but I was crying because it was the world was changing in a way that I just could not comprehend and it was too much for me. And I always say that the 2011 revolution, January revolution in Egypt was just like eighty million people were living in complete darkness and then somebody turned the light on. You know, the entire population was extremely surprised. Oh my goodness, there are progressive people. Oh my goodness, there are uh, homosexuals. Uh, There are Bahais, there are Shiites. And and it's as if everybody was living in their own cocoon and their own bubble, and suddenly the bubble burst. And it was the same for me. It's as if 2010, 2011, because of the revolution, because of, of my personal status, which I see as a revolution, somebody turned the light on and I suddenly saw the society. And then I started thinking, like, <laughs> what was I imagining back 10 years ago? And I thought that everything would be roses. Later in April 2011, the um, Islamic hardliners took to the streets of Egypt and started asking for the civil code to change, and in particular the article which allows the woman to divorce herself. And the literal translation of the word is extract herself from a marriage, Khula they thought it was not religious. But as a matter of fact, the problem was that it gave women a choice. And they they don't want that. So I thought I'd better stick my foot in the door. So I stuck my foot in the door and filed. Uh, I went to a lawyer and then filed for alimony, filed for for hola for extraction, and filed and continued the legal process, which I'm still doing up till today. I remember it vividly. I was in downtown and I went walking to the lawyer's office, which is about 15 minutes away. And then when the lawyer saw me, he looked at me and like, why, why did your husband leave you? You know, because um, supposedly I'm, I'm, I don't look like somebody who's been deserted by, by her husband. You know, I was sitting there wide-eyed and, and very stunned. I, I couldn't even react. I couldn't even ask the questions I wanted to ask. I left his office and I walked back for about two hours till my parents' home where I was staying. And I was crying all the way. I could not imagine that my life has come down to that. I could not imagine that he, the person I chose to complete my life with, the father of my two daughters, the the person whom I had so many memories, good memories and, and good moments with, that he would have me go down that road. I just felt sorry for myself. I couldn't think of anything in particular. I just felt so sorry for myself. As if I was the only person that was going through that at this moment. As if I was the only female who was subject to that, who had been deserted, who had to resort to court, uh, who was on her own. I felt it was only me in the world. And that's a very lonely place to be. The worst
4: thing is... Because we didn't communicate, he and I, I would tell his daughter, tell him, and he would tell his daughter, tell her. Go tell your dad, and he would tell her, go tell your mom. This is how we lived. The blunt was on my children. They took the crying, they took the difficult times. I'm sorry. I cry for my kids, because I didn't know one of them went to a psychologist and then uh, she asked to talk to me and then she said how couldn't you see it how could you put everything on your children and then I told her I had nobody else so this is why I'm crying because I put this on my children and, and it affected them, and I didn't know. I said ugly things about their dad. I mean, I kept telling them, how could he do this? And then I would cry to them, and they were kids. They were kids. And I, I would tell her, go tell him. And he would tell her, go tell your mom. And so they were messengers. And then they would see my anger, and then he would tell them, I can't live with your mom, with her moods. And my moods were because I was raising them alone.
0: My daughter, um, she was uh, she was in class, the, the younger one, and she was explaining something to a, to a friend of hers. And then this little dandy girl came to her and she said, what, she's, what are you doing? And she said, I'm explaining this thing to my friend. So she spoke to the friend and she told her, "Um, don't listen to her because, you know, her father is not around to explain things. I'm sure she's pretty dumb. I was so, so hurt that I was crying and they were telling me that, mom, it's okay, like we managed. It's really okay. And I felt so sorry for them. And maybe it's my weakness that forced them to be strong whenever they they would be angry or miserable or crying. And I told them, look, I know it's a very painful situation, You don't have a father, that's extremely painful. I don't have a husband, that's painful as well. But there are two ways to deal with it. Either we sit and cry, and I don't think that's going to achieve much, or we move on. And I choose to move on. Part four, stigma. When I thought about divorce, I always thought about separation. But I don't know, there was so much stigma around the the term divorce and divorcee that I never even thought about. It's like, uh, uh, uh-uh-uh, it's not sticking to me. It's not happening to me, definitely, you know. My then mother-in-law refused to speak to me. And she used to phone my mother. And through my mother, she would phone the girls. She would speak with the girls. And she would always tell the girls, don't you believe if anybody tells you your father is a bad man, your father is not a bad man. Your father is a great man. Your father loves you. She had a huge fight with my mother telling her that if your daughter was properly brought up and if she had ethics and she had morals, she would have never left her house. She should have uh, waited, she should have been patient, she should have shouldered the burden. It should have been your daughter. No proper girl does that. And what she used to say over and over again, my son is a man, my son is a man. My son is a man, he can do whatever he pleases. My son is a man. I watched my parents' reactions and my family's reaction and I realized how big an issue divorce is. Like my father was uh, it was much easier for him to deny my existence, to deny our existence, rather than do something about the situation. He cannot stand that his daughter is divorced or single or stranded in his house. And my mother... She didn't speak about it, but she kept telling me, please, if you're going to any family gathering, please do not mention where you are. When a couple in Egypt go and file for a divorce, it automatically changes their status with the Ministry of Interior. When you issue your identity card, the identity card says you're divorced. For me, because I dared and I asked for a divorce or an extraction or kholak, It does not automatically go down in the files. And this meant that I had to go through from office to office, door to door, court to court, police station to police station for six months just to register that I'm now single so that if I marry again, I'm, I'm not in trouble. This is the way invisible chains are put around women. The moment was in court when a male figure who had a sort of authority over documents that I needed, asked me for um, a sexual bribe in order to get my papers uh, moving and my documents moving. Then when I realized how demeaning it was in this society to be a divorcee, then is when I really, really cursed the father of my children from the bottom of my heart, that I had to go through this.
4: I used to avoid going to breakfast parties, to lunch parties, because they're going to whisper. Oh, she's the one. Her husband cheated on her, you know? And then the way they talk to you as if they feel sorry for you. How are you doing? I hope you're fine. Nobody died in my family. I just got divorced. But then their tone of voice makes me sick. Um, You know, you don't have to be compassionate, you know, I'm just normal. There was this lady who who asked me, uh, can you please tell me how this happened and how you couldn't see it? And then I looked at her and I tell her, I'm sorry, but this is private. I'd rather not talk about it. And I felt so good, so good that I came home And I told Dana, and I called my other daughter, you know what I did today? So it took me a while to say, I'm a divorced lady. Here, you know, when you want to buy stuff, meat or grocery, anything, you call up. Everything is delivered. So they knew me by a name, by a last name, and then I kept thinking, oh gosh, I just don't want them to keep calling me by the previous name, the merit name. So it took a while for me to have the guts to tell them, listen, don't call me with this last name anymore. I have this now. You know, it took me a while to do it, but I felt so good when I did it. What's so beautiful about it is like they see a strong lady that says it. Oh, she's not shy. She says it out loud, you know. And I love the, the, their reaction, especially in front of men no I'm divorced I say it and everybody looks
0: the lows are the loneliness nothing from people hurt me anymore because I can reply and I can answer back and you kind of grow this attitude that really scares people off they would think twice before they say something that would get on your nerves but it's the loneliness it's the realization of how slim is the chance to to meet someone to have an uh, a, an adult relationship because my divorce kind of like blew apart all the pillars a proper marriage and a proper relationship should be based on like like trust honesty integrity honor and so on all these were just blown off so now in order to to enter a relationship and build trust and build uh, and, and and build a relationship, it's extremely difficult for me. It, I realized that somebody would have to dig in and who has the time and the effort nowadays to kind of like go through such a lengthy process with another person who has been through a lot in order to see her from the inside and then start a proper relationship. My old me was pathetic. And she was kind and naive to the extent of being silly and stupid. She was blind. She refused to see. And she, she went to lengths to remain in the dark and in the unknown. The new me, I like much more. I'm more comfortable with. Although she's a bit feisty and she's a bit vicious. Sometimes it's a bit vile. But I, I understand where she's coming from. I can't continue to be angry at the old Rania because it's not going to work. Because there's dissociation in between. I have to make amends between them both and realize that they both contributed to who I am today. Part five, today, if,
4: if somebody would tell me uh, that I would be getting a divorce, I would have never gotten married. When I married, it's like when my mother married uh, and her mother married. At that time, you marry for a lifetime, you know, and that was my, my idea of marriage. And I think it was his, you know. I wanted my marriage to last for a lifetime. I wish I had somebody telling me, Rada, don't be desperate and depressed and sad because good days are going to come. It's a learning experience. Divorce is a learning experience. They say, I love this phrase, it's a blessing in disguise. I love this, a blessing in disguise. You know, you, you think it's, the world is coming over your head. How are you going to deal with it? and how you're gonna be with your kids, how the kids are going to react, and and so on. Everything negative, negative, negative feelings. But then it turns out to be a blessing in disguise. I love this. I don't know what it is, but I'm taking it a day at a time. I have my friends, I have my book club. I have friends that I we go field trips around Lebanon. I have a friend that I meet every Sunday and two, three that we see each other once a month, but we still meet and talk and put our phones on the side. And I have my kids and I'm healthy, I'm blessed in so many ways, and that's what makes me stronger. I count my blessings.
1: This episode was produced by Shahid Beni Odeh, Dana Balut, and Alex Atak, with editorial support by Bella Ibrahim and myself, Hibba Fisher. Sound design by Mohamed Khrizat. Special thanks to Rania Reda and all the other women who spoke to us about their divorce. Thanks for listening. Until next time.